0: Log Talk Radio There's something outside. What is that?
1: shoulders of giants. We're going to pick up where we left off the last time. We were discussing the very colorful Renee DeHendon. I want to welcome back my special guest, Thomas Steenberg. How are you doing, Thomas?
2: I'm doing fine, Julie. Doing just fine.
1: Good to hear. For those of you who may not know, Thomas is a longtime Canadian investigator Um, he's actually been doing this since 1979, um, 78, 78? okay, so he's been doing this a long time, um, very no-nonsense investigator, and, uh, I just really enjoy all of our talks, so let's get right into, uh, where we left off about Renee DeHendon. We had discussed that he was on those um, beer commercials, and uh, towards the end of his life, there he was getting frustrated about not having any real evidence and about some of the infighting going on. And um, do you recall some of the last conversations that you had with him, and, and you know what his real attitude was about? the way things were going Thomas can you give us some insight into that
2: well one of the last conversations i had with renee at his place and this is just uh, a little while before he died uh, he had to uh, leave his home at the vancouver gun club and move to a sort of a retirement home and i think it was in white rock just before he moved i mean he had he was sickly because uh, he was he was dying of cancer and um, uh, he was so skinny, and uh, he expressed uh, complete, actual severe doubts as to the, uh, whether or not he believed the creature existed or not. Uh, that, that's basically because in all the years of his searching, he never he never saw anything, and uh, he really had doubts about a lot of it. And he really, really was frustrated on where the Sasquatch field was, in what direction it was going in. And you got to remember, this is 2001, so it was really mm-hmm. before the the internet got as big as it is now. And even then, there were signs that what what I referred to as uh, the asylum being run by inmates, basically taking the whole thing over and getting all the mm-hmm. attention, of course, right? And mm-hmm. Renee was uh, completely disillusioned with all of that. He didn't like that at all, and he he, he had serious doubts about the whole thing. And uh, half of my time was spent trying to talk him out of putting all his files and everything in a big pile and setting them all on fire, because that's what he, was, oh. he wanted to do, because he didn't want basically anybody to get his hands on it. So I did my best uh, to uh, try to convince him not to do anything like that, and... Uh, and uh, Larry Lunn uh, was was uh, also discussing that with him. I met, I think Larry got a lot of his files, and what what Larry didn't get, I think, is in the possession of his uh, son Eric, who lives in the shoe area now, including Rennie's okay. copy of the film. Right. So wow. when, when Rennie passed, and it, 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 when he went downhill, he went downhill fast. I mean, it was just like I, I couldn't believe this guy. He spent all his life hardly ever went to a doctor in his life he seemed to be immune to anything and then when he got sick it was just like the sail was the wind was taken right out of his sails and he just went downhill real fast and he was disillusioned disheartened with the whole thing but he didn't give up on it totally didn't give up on it totally. but he did not like the way the sasquatch field was going and i gotta I got say like uh the way things are now today he 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 was right it's gone in a bad direction and uh and it's unfortunate because Rennie was always old school uh he thought if it does exist, it's a flesh and blood animal it's it's a zoological mystery, not a supernatural mystery and mm-hmm. uh that's the way he always looked at it and as far as I'm concerned if the Sasquatch does exist and I do believe it does. He's right. It is a flesh-and-blood animal. Nothing more, nothing less. And Rene, of course, uh, well, that's the way he always looked at the whole matter, and uh, that, well, up until the day he died.
1: Well, yeah, and he uh, he had a lot of uh, interesting Rene quotes about things. And the other day I... <laughs> pulled some off the internet again and I was reading them and <laughs> uh some of them I could never say on air cuz this is a family show. Um, <laughs> you know what they are. But yeah, it it seems that the theme um in a lot of his quotes was basically people are trying to solve a mystery with another mystery by adding in this paranormal um explanation and uh whatever happened to the facts, just the facts.
2: Yeah, yeah, but you you know as well, do My favorite saying is stick to the facts, never deviate from the facts. And so many yes. people today they just go off on wild speculation. They assume a lot and a lot of things in the past where and I remember how they started, uh people assuming things like, you know, stick glyphs and shelters and twisted trees. All that was started off as, uh, you know, questions. Uh, could a Sasquatch be responsible for this stuff? And I have to say in all the years I've been looking, I've come across all of it, and I've never seen any evidence that the Sasquatch has anything to do with it. But, oh, forgive me, but i got a train going by in the background oh, that's all here. Right. Yeah, I'm only 40 feet build. from the tracks.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh,
2: Leslie <laughs> uh, said, um, uh, Things like that, it's through retelling in time, and before you know it, by the early 1980s, every documentary is saying Twisted Trees is, uh, is a sign left by Sasquatch. Well, that was never established. That was never confirmed. It was just a question. It's another now, example wasn't of how it a Titmuss lot of these one
1: that questioned that early on Bob Titmuss.
2: Yeah, it was Bob Titmus that first uh, uh, proposed that maybe Sasquatch has something to do with these broken off trees he's been finding. But he never, ever, ever said that was definite. He just wondered.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And through time and retelling. And before you know it, uh, people coming in this field today, they think that's an established fact when it never was. It took on a life of no. its own, never should have. And uh, well, in no, my. And I, yeah.
1: I get what Bob Titmus was saying was getting at, I mean, obviously, if you have an eight-foot bipedal creature bashing through the woods, there's going to be broken branches. There's going to be evidence that something large came through there, but what a lot of people, this arch, you know, they say, oh, this arch was done by Bigfoot. They made an arch out of this tree, and it's pointing towards water, and I mean... (laughs) What? I mean, I just shake my head at some of that, but um, there—it's a long jump between uh, obvious physical evidence that would make sense for a creature that size to be making, versus, you know. Tree limbs kind of laying on each other, and oh my god, And Sasquatch built that first sh- oh, uh, shelf. I know,
2: I know, and, and it, it's gone beyond that. They not only say Sasquatch make them as they go moving through, they say they're actual markers left by Sasquatch intentionally, like they have some meaning behind them. And of course, they never wonder why all these, most of these trees seem to be on forestry roadsides and uh, cut line sides. In other words, were a heavy wind. Uh, and heavy frost and heavy snow does things to trees, and there's no other trees to one side to stop them from coming down.
0: <laughs>
2: you know? uh, right. And, I mean, there's a lot uh, of other uh, um, nations, And I can't stand it when people say, well, no one else was anywhere around. Well, how did they know that? Were they monitoring the uh, area for uh, every trail and stuff? You're there. What makes you think no one else has been there? I mean, <laughs> Right, <laughs> um, right cross time and time again, and Moretti, R- he's just and John too. He didn't, he didn't uh, buy any of this at, at all either. He said it's a possibility, and I suppose in a sense it is, but it's taken on a life of its own, much more, and become much more important to so many people in this field, and it shouldn't, and it never should have. And that's just my opinion, but uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's and, and I I can agree with that. Um, and I know that going out investigating and um, in some of the places that we do, yeah, there's a uh, there's some areas that it looks like an elephant went through there. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I didn't see what went through there, but it's interesting, you know, well, because actually,
2: you see uh, things like uh, weird things in the bush here in British Columbia where uh, downdrafts come down, and you find an area about 100 feet wide where every tree looks like it's been blown over or, or blown over or, or like like a tornado had touched down, and the trees right beside it aren't touched.
1: Mm-hmm. seen uh, mm-hmm. yeah, them good times. points there.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, nature plays all kinds of strange tricks, and human activity plays all kinds of strange tricks, like these inverted trees people find on the ground never think to wonder why they always find them right next to a road or a path. Uh, the logging industry used to do that as a joke. They used to do that to make road signs, they take the signs down, but they leave the tree there. I know in B.C., mm-hmm. and a lot of people were doing that to old trees because they made good nesting sites to help the eagles. <laughs> so, right.
0: You yeah, know and then, uh, then that
1: makes sense, you know, and I've also heard uh, some loggers, have said that, that they have the newbies do things like that to test the mm-hmm. equipment and just to mess with them and make them do stupid things.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, I just...
1: yeah, I mean, there there's, could be a thousand explanations for one thing, um, but I would think that Occam's razor fits in there, and it's probably the one that makes the most sense. Yeah, uh, yeah, now, Rennie, he, Yeah, he's just lost his mind over some of this stuff.
0: Oh, some he, of the he,
1: quotes that I read that he, um, <laughs> he, he cracked he cracks me up, I got to admit. <laughs>
0: he had yeah. to have been
1: hilarious to be sitting down talking to when he got fired up.
2: Oh, my God. I often wonder, geez, does he talk about me this way when I'm not around other people? I don't know. <laughs> right,
1: right. And with his accent, nonetheless. <laughs> what, what first words would be
0: Do you know what that goddamn class is doing? You yeah. <laughs> know
2: <laughs> Okay, here comes another hour long rate. <laughs> Rant. Yes, yes, see that's that,
0: that <laughs> is a way he is you know, he's oh, so colorful.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, he and some, um sometimes I had to defend yeah. these people which really, really don't stand by, don't, don't know what you're talking about. But he never held it against me. Like, he held it against so many other people. He never held it against me. To this day, I really don't know why, but he didn't. (laughs) That's great. You did such
1: a uh, good impersonation of him, too. I think he'd be happy.
2: Um, I've had a lot of
1: practice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I bet so. Let's talk about, we can't talk about, Renee, without going back to one of the most fascinating uh, events for me personally, and the the whole Sasquatch history of investigations and research and expeditions, and that's the November 1959 Pacific Northwest expedition in, in Bluff Bluff Creek, California.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That is uh, was very interesting. Had a lot of, of greats together there. It was Tom Slick, obviously, and Renee, and Kirk Johnson Jr. Um, mm-hmm. and Patrick. Bob Titmus, Jerry Walsh, and John Green.
0: hmm
2: um, And don't forget whole, later on, Peter Byrne.
1: Yes, and Peter Byrne. The whole reason for that was, by God, to find evidence that these things exist. And...
2: Well, that's what it was supposed to be. Right. What it really was was people... I'm going to be the one to find it before you do. (laughs) And that's what it it degenerated to. Because Rennie said uh, Tom Slick was a millionaire, but you'd never know it. Because he didn't spend hardly anything on the expedition. He did supply a chainsaw to them once, and it didn't work. They were all using their own vehicle. uh, They all brought their own food. And they're all using their own equipment. Half the moon didn't talk to each other, like Titmus and uh, De Hinden. How they got them to stand together for that one photograph by the fire, right i will never know.
0: <laughs>
2: because Titmus and DeHindon hated each other from the outlet. And, uh, and of course, when uh, Tom Slick brought his friend Peter Byrne, who led some of his expeditions for the Eddy in Nepal to run the whole thing, well, the, especially the Canadians, Green and DeHindon and Titmuss, they, didn't, they were just appalled at this. A Brit, well, he was actually an Irishman, but he sounds like a Brit, was being brought in the run the whole show because they thought they knew a lot about Sasquatch and they weren't going to take orders from this Brit. I think it was a throwback to Canadian soldiers being cannon fodder for British officers. I don't know. But there was bad blood right from, the, right from day one in the word go. And they actually went down there, like in 58, Green went down there the first time. That was one year before the Pacific Northwest Expedition to look at tracks, and that's where the original uh, tracks were found that gave Sasquatch its American name Bigfoot, you know, the Jerry Crew print. Yeah, the Crew. Uh, Yeah, yeah. and, and Rennie couldn't go down there then because he was in Canada, but he hadn't gotten his citizenship yet, so he had border problems. So he couldn't go down there right away, but he did get down there the following year and become part of the Pacific Northwest Expedition. And he thought he thought Tom Slick was too gullible. He thought Tom Slick was too eager to follow up. Like a couple of guys showed up and said, oh, we know where they are. We know where to find them. I can't remember their names. And they had a couple of Slick helped them out, and he got a couple of pack horses with uh, supplies and a lot of booze. And they went running off to the bush, and apparently they just spent the whole time sitting around the campfire drinking, smoking, and having a good time at Tom's Lincoln Spence. And when they came out after a bad, bad rainstorm, they had left the horses behind, so Renee had to go in there to retrieve the horses. And they got caught in another rainstorm, and this guy actually was talking about shooting one of the horses. Eat them, and Rene said, you do that, I'll shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> You know that doesn't
1: surprise me, right there. Oh yeah,
2: so, that's like I said. It was it was uh, it was a beautiful place. It was great to do research, and Rennie and the rest of the fish had thought, you know, one's going to pop up from behind a tree any day, and this whole thing's going to be over with. But it didn't happen. And there's one really embar- embarrassing story, and this is I think this is where, uh, where well DeHinden never let Titmus forget this. Uh, Titmus thought he found. Absolute evidence of where a Sasquatch was was sort of hanging around. He said, "There's big, loud pile of droppings there, and I'm sure it's a it's a Sasquatch." Or, of course, they were using the American term Bigfoot all the time down there. And Slick went off with Titmus, and they went crawling up this hillside through the brambles and stuff, doing an op to watch this area. And Titmus was sort of acting independently, even though he was part of the expedition. He would, he would He wouldn't cooperate with the rest. He was kind of like a lone, lone shark doing his own thing while all this was going on. And he took Slick out. And while they were watching, yeah, there was definitely a big pile of scat of some kind by this tree. And they watched, and they watched, and they watched. And all of a sudden, they heard a noise. They thought, something's coming. This is it. And what they saw was this old Hoopa Indian gentleman dragging an old pony and uh, he had uh, obviously fishing gear with him and stuff like that because there was a creek nearby. And he watched uh, the guy tie the horse up right by the tree near this big pile of scat. And they walked up to him and they introduced themselves. And he said, Oh, I've been coming here for 15 years. always oh, tie my horse up here. Yep, you see where he's been crapping all this
1: time? Oh, oh, oh my oh, <laughs> That was the end.
2: That was the end. And, and when they came back out, and they were talking about Tim was looking looking embarrassed you. uh Tibbus said, It was horse shit.
0: Oh my god. Oh. Dropped,
2: slapped it in gear and sped out of camp and they didn't see him for a while. But that was the kind of thing that happened over and over and over again and uh, That is you know, hilarious. What are the odds, the, right? The that that the guy Bob happens first, to show up with the team? the late Bob Tibbs were thinking they had something there. They, there wasn't any sign of anyone being around. This big pile of scat. Some areas looked like something been sitting, and I had no idea it was some old Hoopa Indian fellow with a horse. Right, <laughs>
1: and that that is um, a very intriguing yeah. bit of information because, again, you know, it rule everything out before you rule anything in, and I and I Correct. think that they were so much wanting to find evidence that, you know, that, that kind of got overshadowed by the moment of wanting to see what in the world is doing this, and then they find out the truth, and it might have, you know, been a, a bit of embarrassment there, but that, that's how we all,
2: all they, figure they, things they out. All they all embarrassed embarrassed or may fool themselves at one point or another. But, you, you know, uh, later on in later years, Randy laughed about it. He said, you have to learn. Uh, you know, you learn from your mistakes, and you just hope not to repeat them. And uh, and they did, you know. And, <laughs> I mean, this was the first exactly. real organized, you can call it, that expedition looking for Sasquatch. And it was basically a joke, a cluster. And... Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> And eventually and when Tom Slick died, all his information sort of conveniently disappeared. So never to be heard of again. So we don't know. And of course they and of course that's all started when Peter Byrne was brought in the Canadians didn't want to have anything to do with them and, and uh Renee and Peter actually got along later on in life, but John Green couldn't he if you while he well, simply say to people if you do anything researching Peter Byrne, you'll never work with me.
0: <laughs> so, oh, my God.
2: <laughs> that was the kind of thing. So that's that's probably the biggest main reason I never really met Peter Byrne face-to-face till 2010. <laughs> you know, we, we exchanged phone calls and letters, but uh, we never really met until 2010. <laughs> because wow. I knew John couldn't stand the guy. and Yeah. And uh, I was afraid John Woodhull would hold it against me. <laughs> he probably would have. But
0: I don't know.
1: <laughs> wow, I I tell you, it's amazing how how much uh backstory there is to this and I know that uh let's see, who was it that did most of the um field work when they were actually out there? Um, was it Ed Patrick? He hmm. did a lot of the the work out there in the field, because the Hendon got upset and went back to Canada. Titmus had to go back to run his business. So it, it was kind of like Ed Patrick did a lot of the footwork there, but he didn't get a lot of the credit.
2: Ed Patrick found some pretty good sets of footprints, too, during the Pacific Northwest expedition.
1: Yeah. Did he? Yeah,
2: and, and, and then Green ended up racing back down there. I went and Patrick found that line of tracks in Buck Creek itself. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, it, 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 was, it was disorganized. And, uh, but the fact, but people remember it because it was really the first time anyone tried to organize something to look for Sasquatch or Bigfoot in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. And like Randy said, he may have been a millionaire, but he sure didn't spend any on this. Yeah, and that's
0: too bad. <laughs> we thought
2: maybe it was a little gun-shy because he spent all that money in, in the Himalayas and he was a little gun-shy to spend a whole big bunch down here uh, over here. But, you know, that's just the way it went.
1: Yeah, and I'll tell you that, um, and then Tom Fleck at 42 was in that, Explosion in the aircraft in 1962, and, mm-hmm. and died.
0: Mm-hmm. That was
1: just completely shocking. I'm sure for everyone.
0: And yeah, then, if yeah. I believe
1: right, Kirk Johnson Sr. He passed in 1963, wasn't it? I believe
0: um, so. Something yeah. Something that
1: happened in a early. Let's right. See, was it 60? No.
2: 63.
1: Yeah, I think it. was three when he passed. But it seemed like it, several of them died young that was in that yeah. expedition and
2: mm-hmm. you know, how sad. Yeah, yeah. And uh one of the last uh well Bob Gimlin's still alive of course from the film and he was had nothing to do with the Sasquatch at that point in time. Neither did Roger Patterson actually. This is before Patterson ever got involved. Uh he and a guy, uh, Richard Henry, who was uh, uh, last one of the most uh interesting witnesses to talk to about tracks at the Parish and Films just passed away just over a week ago. So Wow. Losing them all.
1: Yeah. It's uh mm. there's not many left, um no. out there right now and you know, that's one of the reasons why I think it's important to put this in an archive um, an audio because you know people, a lot of people, new, new 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 folks coming into this whole arena may not even know most of these names, and I think it's important that they they do some research on them, and you know, well,
0: because well, you I, know
1: nothing we... else will take away some really crazy stories that you know. <laughs>
0: Well, um, it, it, but she didn't and,
2: even you know, know what uh, happened back remember that old saying old oh, glory is fleeting
0: well it, yes. it kind
2: of is because you know back in the 70's and the 80's and stuff you couldn't pick up a book or watch a documentary or read an article without reading Rennie's name half a dozen times now today most people getting in this today well they may have heard the name but they have no idea who he is and some have never heard of him so uh, yeah, yeah well, just the way it goes, but hey, that's life. yeah, you know that's life, that's the way it goes, yeah, yeah it is, yeah. yeah, one, I mean, do you want me to tell you the ultimate Rene story,
1: boy, do I please okay, hang on, let so me I'll... grab the popcorn, <laughs>
0: okay,
2: I've told this, to okay, you go, one. uh, unlike the story last month i'll I'll tell this one. When Rennie passed away I flew in I was still in Alberta in two thousand and one. And I flew in to attend attendance memorial service and that was a very sad occasion. There had been a thunderstorm oh, I this morning. And I, I took a rental car and I went to the Vancouver Gun to attendance memorial service and it was a good turnout. And I remember standing there on the on the porch with Larry Lund. I think it was Warren Thompson and we could hear the thunder in the distance and Larry said, well, it looks like that thunderstorm may be coming back. And I think I said something, well, that's not a thunderstorm. That's Rene at the gates of heaven. He just was told there's no Sasquatch, and he's arguing with him." <laughs> 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 but I went back there a week after his memorial service, because I had made arrangements with Rene to buy his truck, that camp, beautiful camper truck he had. Oh, yeah. The Green Hornet. And I was going to buy it, and I made arrangements to, to buy it from him. And I was talking with his son, Eric, who was sorting out his effects and stuff like that there. And we were trying to get this truck working. And had jury-rigged this truck so badly that, well, we need new battery cables for it because the battery cables didn't work. So we ended up going to Canadian Tire with Eric and Renee's son to uh, get new battery cables for the truck. And, you know, Eric DeHinnon's a typical country boy, Canada. He's got a pickup truck. And you sit in it. you're up to your ankles in discarded McDonald's wrappers and, and French fry containers and milkshake. I said, for God's sakes, Eric, you've got to do something to clean up this truck. He said, yeah, I know. Well, listen, look, we're right by the garbage bin. Do me a favor. I'll go in, grab the cables. You start throwing all this stuff in the garbage from me. You do me a big favor. I said, okay, no problem. And I was just picking up armfuls of stuff and shoving it into the garbage can outside Canadian Tire there in Richmond. And I'm and just at the end, and I noticed that right on the seat there's this little half round shoe box. And I opened it up and I said, Well, that's nothing dirt. And I had that box right over the garbage can, and I was about to pour it in. Uh, I looked and I saw there's a little white flex there. I said, Well, I better hold off. I don't know what this is. I, I put it back, and I put it back in the truck, and Eric came back out about 20 minutes later with the with battery cables, and he looked at me, and I said, thanks for cleaning that out. looks like I haven't seen the floor in a long time. And I said, no problem. I said, by the way, what's in this little box? I almost threw it out there, but I thought, and he turned white as a ghost. He said, that's Dad. Oh, my <laughs>
0: God.
2: It was, it was Rennie's ashes. I came that close throwing Rennie's ashes oh, into a garbage god. can a Canadian tire enrichment. Oh my <laughs> oh, god. If I, done, if I had done that, that would have been I never would have been able to live that down. <laughs> oh he my he'd have haunted you.
1: It wasn't in a oh, urn wow. or anything. It was in a shoebox. Actually, <laughs> you know, actually, I mean who would have dunked it, right? Underneath the McDonald's cups and French fries. Oh, there's... it was
0: on the seat, but <laughs> I thought well oh, it was in the seat. Well, at least he's on the seat. Yeah, and I go, what the hell? <laughs> oh.
2: He laughed about it later, but he was sure horrified at the moment. I oh, I believe. bet. I, so. almost his, I almost threw his father and my colleague and friend for many years into a garbage can of fire. Oh, wow. I couldn't believe it. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I don't <laughs> think
1: there's any stories that will top that one.
2: <laughs> I can picture up pretty up the good. Break. I a picture ready up in the back
0: you know what that idiot Steenberg did?
2: Oh, my God. I was on the campfire a few times and stuff, and Henry May got a real kick out of that story once, but, oh, geez, I'm so glad I stopped myself.
0: (sighs) Me, too.
1: I mean,
2: a shoebox full of
1: ashes isn't something you normally (laughs) just find on the Truck seat, yeah, so. Not labeled. Not labeled.
2: Not in there. Yeah, the not labeled and uh a little wow,
0: that's...
2: I actually thought they were they because I saw the white specks. I thought, well, maybe these are seeds of some kind or something, so I better hold off. I had no idea. And Eric just looked oh, at me. He looked white as a ghost, he said, That's dad. <laughs> God.
1: I guess Ronnie got the last laugh, huh?
2: <laughs> oh, My last experience with my old friend and colleague Randy Dehan. <laughs> oh my lord, that's a classic.
0: <laughs> oh, and that's the classic one office, right there.
2: I, I did buy the truck and I drove it all the way back to Alberta. And, and of course, uh, there's a, a rule here: if you if you bring a vehicle from one province to another permanently, you have to get what is called an out-of-province inspection done on it. So I took it in to get it expected, not thinking there's going to be much of a problem. I go in there and they tell me you drove this thing from the West Coast. He said, Yeah. I said, Yeah. He said, And you're still alive?
0: Oh my God! <laughs> and they gave me. <laughs> stopped. stopped
2: the inspection after 20 minutes. They gave me a list of things that were
0: worn out, rusted out. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the truck. Wow. And oh my God. It was just a. It was a. It was a moving death trap. So. <laughs> well, what did you do with it? Well, Eric ended up taking it back. I think it's still sitting in his property. Uh, he lives. He has a property in the Shoe area of British Columbia. I think
0: it's still there.
1: Really? Yeah. I'd love to see that go to a museum. <laughs>
2: yeah, it should be. Yeah, a lot of people think my old Land Rover should be in one too. I don't have that anymore, but uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> that nearly killed me too when the when the steering went out on a mountain road and. About 12, about fifteen years ago. So. Oh my God. Yeah, we wear them out, and the, you know, vehicles wear out, and uh, things go wrong, and they got to be fixed. Right,
1: you know? and and unfortunately, sometimes you're in it when those things happen.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Um.
1: Wow. I don't even know where to go from there. It's like wow.
2: <laughs> All right, so. Let's tell uh, so, uh, yeah, like I said, I've had a rather colorful long history with the Yeah, area.
1: I mean I just
2: God, I, mean, I don't think there's anything
1: that can top that. That's,
0: oh, that's mind
1: blowing <laughs> that you were that close to. You you had it over the trash thing and getting ready to dump it and eh, better not. I
2: better. Right over the garbage can. Lid lit off, half <laughs> bent over, some of it almost ready to come out and then I noticed those white specks and I thought, No, no, I better hold off. I don't know what this is. <laughs>
0: Oh
2: my God! I sat back in the truck, thinking he'd say, "Oh, that's nothing," throw it out anyway. But no, he just turned. Why didn't he just stare at me for five seconds? And he said, "That's Dad."
0: <laughs>
2: you should. I don't know what my facial expression was, but I oh, I'm it was... <laughs>
0: sure.
2: Oh my God!
0: Oh, that's that's I said, too what much, is, Thomas. Yeah, um... Why
2: didn't say something to you? No so one. <laughs> <laughs> when we got back to the Vancouver Club Club we were kinda of chuckling about it. <laughs> yeah. And uh oh Renee he 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 had a spot in Harrison Lake. He wanted his ashes scattered and I and Bill Miller knows where it is. Eric never did. And Eric I understand still has the ashes in an urn in his home. We've offered to take them there for uh take him there if he wants to scatter them, but he's never gotten back to us on that.
0: Okay. So the,
1: yeah. the ashes are in an urn and uh, in his son's. At
2: Eric's home, Well that's what I heard, yeah. In his
1: home. Okay, well, that's that's uh, that's interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, John Green, his ashes were scattered at the bottom of Rainbow Falls. I did not attend that service because it was a private family affair only. And Bob Titmuss' ashes were scattered not too far from there, up on the east side of Harrison Lake on a nice high viewpoint. So, um, are all there, and John's the one that scattered Robert's ashes, and he always kind of joked and said, uh, Robert ended up, the wind was blowing the wrong direction, I tried to scatter the ashes, and I got covered in them. (laughs) 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 And he said, he he ended up in the lake all right, but it was through the laundry machine. (laughs) Oh. Wow. (laughs) That's (laughs) the kind of thing that... uh,
1: a lot of we don't, people may
2: not
0: know. Old guard <laughs> you heard it here first, guys. <laughs> yeah,
2: we, well, the old guard in uh, the Sasquatch uh, uh, family, it, it, they don't stop um, <laughs> stories even when they die.
1: <laughs> oh man! Oh, oh stuff. I'm rolling over here.
2: Yeah, and of course we have to read it wasn't too long. Grover passed away, and uh,
0: yeah,
2: and what now? Away. He and, ended up at the Smithsonian, correct? Yes, yes. His uh, his remains, uh, along with the remains of his dog, is he wanted to be still teaching even after death, and uh, he donated his body to science, and in uh, a way, he is. Wow, and I've seen uh, pictures
1: of that, but I've never seen it personally. You know.
2: At, no, no, I I, I I can't remember. Somewhere in the east, I believe, uh, in the Smithsonian or something. I'm not yeah, sure where. Yeah, but I, I mean, don't know if yeah. they still
1: have that on display or not.
2: I think they do, but uh, I don't wow. really know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Grover wanted to keep teaching even after he was dead, and he did. Wow. Him and his yep. dog's bones. That's something else. Him and his. Yeah. Yeah. And Grover, well. Oh my God! Trying to do something with Grover, <laughs> with Rennie in the background. I go. No, I yeah, I bet. No, I don't know how how he ever let me get away with it, but I did it. And, and uh, uh, Grover was uh, was uh, so well, you know. Rennie thought he was gullible as hell, and uh, and uh, but Rennie ha- thought all Ph.D.s were gullible as hell. Either that or they were just stubborn idiots. He had no time for anyone with a Ph.D. at all. And I think that goes back to really to the early years because his impression of a scientist is what he saw on television, you know, a guy in a white coat who would stop mm-hmm. at nothing to find out the truth. He, didn't, he never stopped to consider the politics involved in science and how every time someone makes a new discovery, some... High-ranking professors upset because he just made his book obsolete. You know, <laughs> he, exactly.
0: he had no time. For
2: it. Yeah, he had no time for it. I mean, he—he's the one that took the PG films of the Soviet Union, the old Soviet Union, so the Russians could have a look at it, and then and later on, he wouldn't talk to them either. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it complicated.
1: It sounds like.
2: René was René and there's no other way to describe him.
1: So he had um he he had a, a lot of stuff going on in the background with that the Patterson-Gimlin film from the very beginning René well,
0: did.
2: Wa- he wanted to prove it was a fake. When the film happened René was in San Francisco. And even despite him him and John Green's falling out earlier that year, John still informed him of things when they happened. And uh, I believe it was John Green left a note at his hotel for him. Something's happened. Uh, come to Yakima. Uh, it was filmed or something like that. And um, and Renee, his, to his regret, he said he went he went to Aldi Atley's house that following Sunday to view the film, and he didn't go straight to the film site. He always wished he had. Mm. and uh, He was there with John Green and Jim McLaren and, uh, and Aldi Atley and Roger Patterson in the first showing of the Parrish and Gimlin film. Uh, Bob Gimlin was not there. He was so exhausted because he did all the driving. He was at home sleeping. Uh, and uh, uh, he, he, Rennie always regretted not going immediately to the film site. And he also regretted not writing down the information on the film packaging because it was all sitting there on the table.
0: Mm-hmm. Where
2: it was developed, how it was developed, and everything like that, but no one thought yeah. any of that was important. They didn't know forty years in the future people were going to make an issue out of all this stuff, you know. And they basically yeah, not, I mean, how would they have known they, that you don't know that? So even though they were all disappointed at what they immediately saw, they they thought it was this is the beginning of the end. It's going to be over soon. I don't know. It didn't work out that way.
1: No, because people are still fighting and arguing amongst themselves about it. And uh, of course. it's still one of the we most really...
2: debated topics in this whole really... enigma. That next, next month when we do your uh, PG film episode.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yes, we're going to have uh, Stephen Starford join us mm-hmm. from Little Creek Books. Um, he is very knowledgeable in in the whole history of that so
0: well he definitely everyone
1: wanted, wants to make sure they join us for our next one next month it's going to be we, thomas uh, myself Stephen, and Stephen. He,
2: he did a great job uh, with a, with some colleagues of his down there confirming where exactly the film site is because you wouldn't recognize it today because it's no longer clearing it's all filled with 40 foot second growth forest and he confirmed that most of the landmarks in the film are still there. They're just buried in the new, in the new, in amongst the new trees. And uh, he did a great job there. I'm really looking forward to uh, doing the show next month with him. I, I, oh yeah. I, I
0: always,
2: I always call him Angel Eyes because I always had a hard time pronouncing his last name. So.
1: <laughs> oh, is that what it is? Angel
2: Eyes. <laughs> I, called, I called him Angel Eyes. Uh, I thought it was from, because he had angel um, eyes. I mean, his, I mean and, you know. And I kind of I caught that idea from uh, the Lee Van Cleef character from the old uh, Ultimate Guy film, The Good, Bad, and the Ugly, because his character was called Angel Eyes in that movie. Oh,
0: so. uh,
1: Okay, I see now. It all, and now it's also clear to
2: me.
0: Yeah. Well, Stephen,
1: the cat's out of the bag. Yeah. Um, now I I know that Bob Gemlin returned to Bluff Creek just
2: about two weeks ago. Did you hear about well, that? Well, you might have. We went down yeah. there. I've been to the film site twice. I was there in 1983 when it was still recognizable somewhat. And I, I didn't go back again to 2003 when we had the uh, symposium in Willow Creek. And we all went down there, Chris Murphy, myself, John Green. Uh, we picked up Bob Gimonyakama, and we also picked up Dimitri Fair enough. From the on the airport in Seattle, we all went down there as a group. And when we went down there in 2003, that was the first time Bob Ginlan had ever been back since the Daily shot the film. Wow! And been back there half a dozen times since then for various documentaries and stuff. But 2003—that right. was the first time uh, Bob had ever been back. And he, he couldn't, like he did, he said to me, I couldn't recognize a damn thing. It's changed so much. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, thanks to the guys from the Bluff Creek Project, and yep. um, they, they've they got it pretty well marked now.
0: mhm um, their a great heart job. for all their
1: hard work. Mm-hmm. So let me ask yep. you a personal question, Thomas. In regards yep. to the Patterson-Gimlin film. Real or not real? What's your ideas on that?
2: If the Sasquatch does indeed exist, I believe Roger Parrish and Bob Gimlin filmed one on October twentieth, 1967.
0: Hmm.
2: In other words, if the Sasquatch does indeed exist, I think it, the film is real.
1: Really? If
2: it, if it does not exist and never did, then it is the greatest hoax pulled on the North American public, all well, the world, really. Well, yeah, I would say. Because yeah, yeah, uh Obviously, there is no Sasquatch. They did not film one. But I do believe there is a Sasquatch, and if I'm right, then I think they encountered one. I mean, the 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 the, the Patterson-Gimlin encounter is so similar to so many others I've heard, uh, uh, other than the fact they're on horseback, that the only difference is Roger managed to get his hands on his camera and he filmed it.
0: Hmm.
2: And uh, I always thought. If they, if, the, if they first encountered the creature and realized it was there because their horses reacted. And I always was on the impression, and Bob kind of agrees with me on this, but he's not really sure. I said, you know, if the horses had not reacted to its presence that day, you guys may have ridden right on by her and had never been the wiser. Because I've had so many witnesses tell me, from other encounters, if they hadn't looked right at it, they would not have known it was there. It was standing that still, or was blending uh-huh. into the so well, you know, they never would have known it was there. I've had so many witnesses tell me that I didn't even know it was there until it moved. And the Patterson film, I have the feeling that that creature was probably watching them approach from around that bend and that uh, and that uh, that that uh, root system. Probably, for maybe as long as a minute, and when the horses reacted, it just it reacted and it said, "Okay, I've been spot time to go, and off she went
1: right, and what gets me is that the subject did not run
2: no it walked it, it walked at a walked very off. fast many of the times you see the Paris film and television, you're actually looking at a slowed down version so you can get a better look at it. She was actually moving quite fast, but she was hmm, walking. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So the game Two was months, pretty pretty good, so it was covering ground oh yeah, and, pretty and fast. Yeah, did an excellent, excellent study of the film and the scenario of what happened. Mark of the point, in that old camera, a at K100 Spring-Round movie camera that Patterson was using. Uh, he took his, his, his finger off the button a number of times. Uh, and, and he actually stopped filming. But because of was spring wound, as soon as he pressed that button again, it would start up again. And that's why every time it started up, that first frame is overexposed because that's the film starting up again. And when you look at it, mm-hmm. Roger really didn't get a good look at the thing because he was looking through that horrible camera lens. Have you ever looked through the lens of a Cinecoda K100? It's like mm-hmm. almost like looking through a pair of binoculars backwards. It's horrible. Oh, my. So it was Bob Gillen that actually got the, actually got the good look at it because he was on his horse and he he said his horse he was he was riding unlike Roger he was riding a full size horse fourteen hands tall and he said his eye level was probably when he was sitting on the horse was probably nine feet up so he was kind of almost like looking down on it a little bit that's why they always asked Bob at first thought it was probably six and a half to seven feet tall some people say it's over seven feet tall. Somewhere around that area. But Bob said on his horse, he was actually taller than it was. Uh, and he stayed on his horse. And, and when Roger yelled, cover me, he, he stopped his horse, got off it, pulled his rifle out of the scabbard, held on the horse, but he never, he never took aim. He never took aim. He never took aim. He never had his rifle sights on it. A lot of people have said since then that he did, but that's not true. He had his rifle out. He was off his horse. But he did not aim at the creature.
0: Did he, he say why he did not aim at the creature?
2: He never aimed at the creature. He had his rifle out and he was holding it in his arm, and he was holding on to the, onto the reins of the horse too, because he kept his horse under control. He lost the pack horse, and of course, Roger's horse went running after the pack horse, and they had to recover them later. But uh, no, he kept his horse under control, and he said he got pretty close to it, and he was always he's always amazed that Roger didn't that you never saw him on his horse on the left-hand side of the of the picture. Because by the time uh, uh, the look-back, 352, which Bob said was the second look-back, he always thought that it wasn't looking at Roger, it was looking at him, because he, at, at that moment, that's when he crossed the creek on his horse. Wow. Mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> so Bob did not take aim at it. Did he ever express why he did not take aim at it?
2: Well, he, him and Roger always had, and you got to remember, he's just reacting. All this is happening in seconds. Bang, 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 and it's over, right? And he said, uh, he he just reacted. He rolled across the creek, and he went, and Roger yelled, cover me. And he, he knew what that meant, so he stopped his horse, got off it, pulled the rifle out of the scabbard, and stood there with his horse and the gun, ready to aim if he had to.
0: Mm-hmm. But
2: it didn't come at, come at them at all. It just walked away. So no, he never aimed at it. Okay. So he mm-hmm. he
1: didn't feel necessarily
2: threatened at that moment in time because it was walking away. No, and the, the men sort of discussed it amongst themselves what they did do, and they both sort of had a, a gentleman's agreement that they would not shoot a Sasquatch if they ever saw one, unless of course it, it attacked or tried to attack them or came at mm-hmm. them in some right. Okay. Well, that uh, makes sense. But Bob, no, he never aimed at it. But he did have his rifle ready to do so if need be. Roger, of course, he had a rifle too, but it was still in the scabbard of his horse, and at that moment, his horse was running away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Roger yeah. was extremely athletic. A lot of people you see hear stories about the film that the horse actually rolled over on a woman. He was trapped under it for a few seconds and bent a stirrup. That's not true either. The horse never fell. Roger was an ex-rodeo rider and he was an ex-athlete and he did gymnastics and he got off the horse and he managed to get the camera out of the saddlebag before the horse took off because he kept the straps unbuckled so he could get to the camera quickly. And he managed to get the camera and he just started running accurate filming as he was running. And Roger was a very short man. He was only five feet, two inches tall. And the banks of the creek were actually taller than he was. So when you first see the object in the film... You see what looks like a big mound of dirt in the way. Well, that's actually the high creek bank because Roger is crossing the creek right at that moment. He comes up on the other side, goes around what they call the S-stick, and he stops and he films those incredible images, the look-back sequence, frame, frame, frame 352. And it's that very moment that Gimlin has crossed the creek on his horse. The creature puts some of that. Uh, down debris and, and 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 stuff in between himself. Roger loses sight of it. He shifts his position, and he moves right up to the log that you see in 352, and he's either standing right beside it or he's actually straddling it. And he and that's where he shoots the last of the 952 frames before the film ran out.
1: Wow! Mm-hmm. See, I didn't realize that Roger was five foot two. Yeah, he was a very short man, very small man.
0: That's he liked interesting the because. Yeah. The like direction to, like to, he... and
1: the level of his filming at five foot two mm-hmm. will make things look different if he was six foot one.
2: Yeah, of course.
1: So that's, a very, that's another fierce, factor. Very
2: small man, a very small man. And he liked to ride what he called Welsh ponies. I don't think it was a Welsh pony who was riding that day, but it was a small horse. Uh, he used to carry two of these ponies in an old Volkswagen van.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> what? And the pack horse was small. It's, always, it's interesting to look at the background of this because there's a lot of scenes of the two men riding the horses before they had their encounter. That's why three-quarters of the film roll was already shot before they had their encounter. And at times you see Roger pulling the pack horse, and his horse is just as small as the pack horse mm-hmm. is. And you see Bob pulling the pack horse, and his horse is like twice the size of the pack horse. So right, Bob was ride, ride, riding a regular horse, and Roger was riding a very small one. Wow.
1: Well, that that can have a lot of play on uh, the way that the actual subject looks in the original film. Then that's wow.
2: Oh, absolutely. I, never I mean, Roger, that. I, I Roger was on foot, five foot two. Still debated whether or not in three fifty two he's actually kneeling or not. I don't. I don't think some people suggest that he had a wooden he- pistol grip attached to the camera. I don't think he did. Uh, I think he held the camera in, a ha- in his hands, which made it even more awkward. And the button's on top of the camera. you you got to press it down to film. So, uh, yeah, that's what happened. But, fortunately, it wasn't oh, battery operated wow. was old-fashioned spring-wound, so nothing would stop it once you pressed the button, and it would go.
1: Well, see, that's a whole lot different than what we have today.
2: You just get your phone out, and you press go, and boom, there you oh, have it. Yeah. Yeah, and he used uh, Kodachrome 2 film, and that was, I believe, the first year Kodachrome 2 film was available to the public, and you had to use a special process, Kodak, to develop it. And Bob always told me he thought there was something wrong with the film, uh, because what he saw was rather brown in color, but it wasn't the dark blackish gray you see in the film. He thought it was a lighter color than what you see when he saw it with his eye than what you see in the film. He said, those fall colors are so brilliant in the film. He said, they were pretty, but they weren't that bright. So uh, Mm. I believe Kodak said the first batch of Kodak Kodak 2 film in 1967 they laid out, there were problems with it. It was overexposing. Oh.
1: Well, there's yet another factor. Yeah. There's endless, countless factors that come into this film.
2: Well, I highly recommend you read the Munns report. He did a great job. Yes, uh, I have read that. Yeah, um,
1: yeah. I found his findings very interesting.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He tends to lean towards that it, that
2: it's a real creature.
1: Isn't, isn't yeah. that correct? Yeah, yeah
2: and, okay. p- and people forget to realize that there was a road right beside the creek at that time at the film site, the old Bluff Creek Timber Axis Road, the same road that Jerry Crew found his original prints in 1958, further down. Hmm. But that road, in sixty-seven, it was already decommissioned. It was no longer in use, though great stretches of it were still usable then.
1: Yeah.
2: Wow. See that? I didn't know that either about the yeah. yeah. And, the Jerry- and the creek has changed course so much, there. and then that it overcuts where the road was, and uh, you really got to know where it is to find it <laughs> today. Wow. Yeah, it's more remote. than am now.
1: Than I'm it stoked either. about then, yeah. our uh, yeah. show for next month um yeah. <laughs> i'm I'm definitely gonna be you know bringing mm-hmm. my hands waiting for that show because I've already learned several things I did not know, and it's just it's amazing that all the details behind this one film um and all the the different arguments and um, facts that may not truly be facts that people yeah. are taking away from this thing.
0: Yeah. You know, I've heard no, all so much,
1: kinds
2: of stuff. So much for not talking about the PG film the next month, but here we go.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, we got a good start for for Stephen. Um, <laughs> yeah, we can jump right in there. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard Rene, so much stuff about. Oh, that Rene,
2: back to Rene. He wanted to prove. Rene didn't like Roger very much You see a lot of photos of them together But he always thought of uh, Roger He called him that Little bullshit artist you Because know, he, didn't, he didn't like Roger too much He didn't trust him And he was convinced for the first while Even though he didn't say it to his face That he had to have faked this And so Rene was really trying to prove All his trips to the film site That the film was a fake uh, but mm. after three or four times down there and doing his measurements, and no one until the Munn's report did more of a uh, a study of the film site and the circumstances surrounding the Patterson-Gillen film than Rennie did all through the 70s. Uh, just going to the site and doing his measurements and, and sticking to the facts and never deviating the facts, he came right. to the conclusion that the film was real. Wow. Wow. And he believed that to the day he died, too.
1: Oh, he did. Okay,
2: so that yeah. never wavered. No, no, and, and matter of fact, Renee—he's the one that uh, started uh, uh, pestering Bob Gimmon to go after Mrs. Patterson legally to to get his rights to certain stills of the film, and you know, because uh, Bob Gimmon was supposed to be a one-third partner in anything to do with the film, and they sort of shut him out of it. Especially Aldi Attlee, Roger Patterson's brother in law. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, if anybody, anybody after Roger passed away had a good reason to come out and say this man faked this film, it was Bob Gimlin. Right. It's basically, Bob Gimlin was shut out of everything. I mean, Aldi Attlee and Patterson actually had an actor pretending to be Bob on stage presentations on the film.
0: Yeah. And,
2: well, yeah, about, that's something well, that I want to uh, talk about next show, too. Yeah, yeah we'll talk about that that's, next
1: month. <laughs> yeah, that's something that's definitely uh, an interesting uh, little event there that um, is kind of fading away in history. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of people don't know about it. So, But I recall hearing about that years ago. So, mm-hmm. Well, listen, Thomas, we're about out of time. Um, we're running out here. I really enjoyed this show. I thank you so much for joining me. Um, We just have so much to talk about, so much. And uh, you guys don't miss next month's show. I'm telling you, it's going to be a good one.
2: Thomas, thank you for joining me
1: tonight.
0: You're very
2: welcome. And to all the researchers out there, just remember, stick to the facts and never deviate from the facts. Absolutely. And I have that shirt of yours. Has your <laughs> mug
1: on there, and it says that on my shirt, and I'm actually wearing much. that.
2: So there you have mine. it. Not <laughs> mine. I didn't. Someone down there in the southern states put that out. I just thought. Of, I yeah, that's. Let them go ahead. <laughs> but yeah,
0: but yeah. Yeah, I saw
1: that, and I just had to have one.
0: So. Okay.
1: All right. Well, <laughs> listen, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Um, I hope you got as much out of the, out of this that I did. Um, I think it's been very fascinating, and we will catch you the next time. On Monster X is On the Shoulder of Giants Talking Old Timers with Thomas. Until then, keep it squatchy.